Listener Production. Doctors' surgeries are overwhelmed, so people are turning up to the emergency departments. The words are full. There are nurses who would normally work in one department, working long shifts in areas they don't usually work in. The bottom line is, it's going to cost lives. I have a rash on my face from protective gear and I've just about had enough. That emotional voice you can hear is Meg and she's a nurse from Western Sydney. She got in touch with us to tell us how difficult the Omicron wave has been for healthcare workers. She's not the only one having a hard time. Mandy from Victoria has a similar story. I thought it was bad when we were in lockdown and we were putting ourselves at risk by going to work every day. Now there are literally hundreds of people turning up every day to the emergency department. We can't keep going. Half the nurses are calling in sick, the other half are just exhausted. We seriously do not get paid enough for this. So we're clocking tens of thousands of COVID cases a day now, and they're just the ones that we know of. Uh, Right now, there are over 3,500 Australians in hospital. Uh, 342 of those are in intensive care. So on this episode of The Briefing, we thought we'd take a look at the COVID crisis in our hospitals. It's a difficult time for so many people, and it's actually, I think, in some ways a dangerous time because... We rely on our health system and that health system is not as reliable as it would like to be. Today is Wednesday the 12th of January. It's great to be back with you. I'm Katrina Blowers. That story is coming up in just a sec. But first, Annika Smethurst joins me for the headlines. Thanks, Katrina. Staff shortages could cripple the Australian economy, with hundreds of thousands of Australians now isolating due to COVID-19. Industry groups held crisis meetings with the federal government last night with fears sectors from travel to agriculture will be hit. Yeah, so PM Scott Morrison is actually seeking a national deal to loosen isolation requirements for more workforces. Uh, some of those services under consideration for those relaxed ISO requirements include road, rail, air and sea transportation, veterinary and animal welfare, education across all the sectors, energy and water supply, sewerage and sanitation, as well as waste recovery. So really the essential services there, but a lack of rapid antigen tests is making that really difficult. Yeah, we all know what that's like. Queensland horticultural body Growcom has told News Corp the crisis could mean harvests will be disrupted for six weeks, with mangoes and avocados likely to be missing from supermarket shelves. Coles has already introduced limits on toilet paper and painkillers because, as we're being told, we need to stock up in case we get the COVID. Yeah, so staff shortages everywhere, including at airports, mean that even airports are soon going to be considering shutting down at certain times because they just don't have enough people to to keep the operation going. Uh, National Cabinet is going to be meeting tomorrow and it's hoped that state and territory leaders will come up with a consistent set of rules then. GPs say they're being swamped by COVID-related cases as well as demand for booster shots and jabs for children while supply of the vaccine continues to be an issue despite the federal government's assurance. 
We have the supplies available uh, to ensure that all those children receive a first dose by the end of January. That's the Deputy Chief Medical Officer Michael Kidd there. So GPs are having a tough time sourcing child doses of vaccine, even though the federal government says uh, 835,000 children doses have already arrived at the front line. The Department of Health has said clinics are only allocated between 100 and 200 child doses per fortnight, but some health centres say they have a capacity for 600. Another major source of pressure on GPs came after people were told to contact their doctor if they tested positive on their rat. There was no system in place for us to do anything with that. So all of that has come together and just really smashed general practice. Melbourne GP Todd Cameron on the ABC there. Meanwhile, hospitals are continuing to struggle. Over 3,500 people are taking up beds, double the number at the start of the month. And Melbourne has issued its second code red for paramedics a week after its first. It's as the country clocks more than 80,000 new cases. Novak Djokovic could still be deported with questions surrounding his travel declaration form. The Immigration Minister, Alex Hawke, is still working out if the tennis star's visa will be cancelled. Mm, Djokovic said on his visa application form he had not travelled in the past fortnight, but social media posts show... He was actually in Spain on his way to Australia. The Spanish <laughs> foreign by min- Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> the Spanish foreign minister has said the Australian government hasn't contacted him yet, and that he has no record to show Djokovic's presence in the country. Just those videos of him training in Spain. <laughs> Meanwhile, Premier Dan Andrews has denied the Djokovic saga is a bad look for Victoria and the Open. I think that Rafa and a few others have made the position very, very clear. This tournament is much bigger than any one person. It's a grand slam. It's the biggest thing in tennis in the first quarter of the year. It's a massive event for us and it's bigger than any one person, whether that be in the court or on the court. Oh, I don't know. I think all the headlines of recent days have made it pretty much about one person. Uh, Former professional tennis player and Liberal MP John Alexander kind of agrees with me on that one. If the Australian Open is making conditions that people seem to meet and then are not allowed to come even though they seem to have met the conditions, uh, that would not help our status. Yeah, it's all that's making news overseas and JA knows that. But for now, though, Djokovic has spent his first day out of detention training on Rod Laver Arena. Half of Europe is expected to contract COVID in the next two months. At this rate, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation forecasts that more than 50% of the population in the region will be infected with Omicron in the next six to eight weeks. The World Health Organization's Regional Director for Europe, Hans Kluge there. Record COVID-19 cases have put Europe under pressure this winter. Some countries have put in more restrictions, whilst others like Austria, Greece and Italy have announced a new vaccination requirement. Dr Kluge has called on countries yet to be affected by the surge to stock up on PPE. He's also worried about the impact Omicron is going to have on Eastern Europe, where vaccination rates are lowest. And natural disasters continue to wreak havoc on regional communities, with southern Queensland still mopping up in the wake of Cyclone Seth. It's now New South Wales's turn. Lithgow, west of Sydney, has seen a downpour sparking flash floods. 
So a month's worth of rain, 72 millimetres was recorded in just an hour yesterday afternoon over in WA. A fire continues to burn out of control in the southwest, already destroying more than 200 hectares of land and more than 800 people were evacuated from the Eagle Bay and Bunker Bay areas yesterday afternoon. Crews are working to make the area safe and as soon as that area has been made safe, police ask and will be doing a full investigation of the incident area. Incident controller. Blake Moore there. While Cyclone Tiffany has redeveloped into a Category 1 as it moves west over the Gulf of Carpentaria, expected to make landfall today, causing heavy rain and winds of up to 130 kilometres an hour. So great to have you back joining us again, Annika. Up next, Jan Fran is going to be taking a look at the COVID crisis in our hospitals. Hi, it's Jan Fran here. You heard from nurses at the top of today's show about the strain that they're under during this Omicron wave. Let's explore what's happening in our hospitals a little bit more now with Dr Stephen Parnas. He's an emergency physician. He's based in three Melbourne emergency departments. He's also the former vice president of the Australian Medical Association. Dr Parnas, tell us what it's like in the hospitals that you work in right now. It's demanding as the previous waves of the pandemic have been but this one's a little bit different I think and the main differences I think is one the level of fatigue and two the level of staffing shortages that we're facing across the sector and I think indeed across the the entire country, actually. I've never seen it like this. There was a lot of focus throughout the pandemic on the number of beds available, but clearly it's staffing that's the key issue now. So tell us what that's like. How hard is it to find enough people? Which of the different roles in the hospitals are you struggling to fill at the moment? Are you having to put some people into shifts that they don't have training in? How tough is it getting? The area where I've got the most experience is emergency. That's the main one that I see. And to give you an example, we've got a fairly complex roster at one of my hospitals and it's all colour-coded according to the different responsibilities, whether that's something like the resuscitation bay, short stay, rapid assessment, consulting roles. They have all different colours, but we also have the grey colour for people who are absent. And Grey is the biggest single colour at the moment and that crosses all of the levels of seniority from consultant level way down to first year doctor or intern and I don't look very often at the nursing roster because it's a source of anxiety at the moment. There's a lot of shortages there and that means that there are fewer people to do the work and there are a lot of places in my department that we just can't staff adequately and the most recent shift I worked we couldn't open what's called the fast track clinic for things that you can get in and out quickly and the short stay unit which is an incredibly important part of emergency medicine hasn't been able to be open for probably a couple of weeks now. So what does all of this mean for patients in hospital? Well Jan it means that there are delays. Hospitals work at or near capacity at the best of times. That's no surprise to any of us who work there. It's just that I suppose people in decision-making roles or in the wider community are probably tired of hearing it, but it becomes more profound now. When the weights get to the point where adverse outcomes 
are likely, that's when people get interested, and those adverse outcomes are highly likely now. Again, my area of emergency, it's clear because you come in and depending on what you've got, let's say abdominal pain, ideally you should be seen within 30 to 60 minutes. If you've got chest pain, you should be seen within 10 minutes. Those targets are not being met very often at the moment. And then, of course, we've got other areas like people who need urgent surgery for something like a hernia that could strangulate or a gallbladder that is full of stones that could get infected or lose its blood supply. These things are waiting for months at the moment. It's a difficult time for so many people. And it's actually, I think, in some ways a dangerous time because we rely on our health system and that health system is not as reliable as it would like to be. In a way, Stephen, you sound kind of calm given what you're describing. People with really serious conditions, you know, having to wait for dangerous amounts of time. But are you actually quite stressed at the moment? Oh, it is is a stressful time. When I walk through the hospital doors in a few minutes, I have to fill in a, if you like, a declaration saying that I've not been a household contact of a sick person. I haven't got the symptoms of COVID, those sorts of things. But one of those symptoms is fatigue and I sort of have a bit of a laugh when I say that one, because if everyone answered that question honestly, there wouldn't be anyone to go to work. My training in emergency tells me that if I don't hold it together, then the performance that I have and of my team will deteriorate pretty rapidly. And that's not a good thing. So what I've tried to do for myself and those around me is to adjust my expectations of myself and to say, what are the things that I have control over that I can do something about and to focus on those. But the things that are outside of my control, I really should not try and shoulder that burden because it will just overwhelm me. And if anyone has learned anything about this pandemic, it's that it is an absolute marathon. And that's where that fatigue just continues to eat away at you. Stephen, the picture that you paint of being really stressed in this situation, sadly, is something that I'm sure health workers around the country can absolutely relate to. How do you feel when you hear our politicians say that the hospital system has got this, we can cope, everything's fine, we don't need to be too worried, but yet what's happening on the ground is a completely different picture to what they're painting? When you hear the Premier say something like that, how do you feel? Now, you're talking about the New South Wales Premier, I suspect, is that right? I would ask myself what the advice he's receiving is. I'd ask myself when he actually last walked through an emergency department because it doesn't ring true. I understand in leadership that it's about encouraging, supporting the troops. To use one small example, one of my jobs is to get the coffees for my team every day to check in on them, see how they're going. I think that's important, but I think it's also important to be completely frank with them. I'm not sure at maybe some of those highest echelons of government that those messages are completely frank and that would only undermine confidence of the population in following the instructions about what we all need to do to get through this. One of the key metrics they talk about when trying to reassure us is ICU capacity and that at the moment we're nowhere near full capacity. Does that reassure you at all? Well, ICU is only one small area of the health system. Granted, it's an incredibly important one. That's where the sickest of the sick go. And in previous waves, it wasn't a critically important metric. But what is becoming more apparent now is that 
we have a much smaller proportion of people who get that sick with COVID that they need intensive care. The burden is actually in other parts of the hospital. So, for example, the surgical wards would have fewer patients at the moment because of elective surgery being stopped and you've got the usual numbers of surgical patients coming through emergency. But medical wards, emergency are all bursting at the seams. And the other area that is got a huge burden is what we call hospital in the home. This is where people are patients of the hospital, but their ward is actually their bedroom or lounge room. So what those things reflect is the change in the pattern of illness. Now, even if only a small proportion of people in the current wave need hospital care, a small proportion of a huge number, and we're now talking hundreds of thousands across the country, that small proportion of a huge number is still a very big number. And the hospital system, certainly in Victoria and New South Wales, and I suspect other states will catch up, we are all groaning under that burden. Doc, how do you see the next few weeks playing out? Because modelling that's been done comparing us to New York and London and South Africa says that cases should peak sometime in late January. How does that look to you from a hospital perspective? Well, first things first, (laughs) the talk of a peak occurring is one that is important for me because in some ways it gives us a bit of a finish line or a way of getting past this current hurdle. We know it's going to get worse before it gets better. We're all hanging on to each other to do that. The question is, how bad will those wait times be and how many avoidable adverse outcomes will occur between now and then? The other thing that I hope it says is that the population will realise that there are things that they can do to put some sort of downward pressure on the transmission of cases, not wait for further advice from government about restrictions, but say to themselves, we have to really be careful as a family, as an individual about where we go and what we do so that we don't run that risk of getting an infection and making things worse. So it's all about hanging on to each other, following some basic rules and waiting to see when numbers decline noting that the numbers are less reliable now because so many people who have symptoms who would usually get a test can't actually get one. So what do you think is going to happen? Is it going to be a disaster where the health system is completely overwhelmed or are we going to be able to get through this peak? I'm not sure that you can say that there's any one moment where you can say it's all over, someone turn out the light. So I think it What we're saying is that really at the moment there is this prolonged external disaster that is causing significant delays and unprecedented levels of stress in the health system. I think it's going to get worse. The priority needs to be what we can do to mitigate this. That's not just a role for healthcare workers, that's a role for everyone. Let's be honest with each other. Let's encourage where we should. Let's advise and warn where we have to. It's a question of when rather than if we come to the other side of it. Well, Dr Parnas, we better let you walk inside those doors, declare that you don't have COVID and get to work. (laughs) Thanks very much, Tom. That was Dr Stephen Parnas, an emergency physician from Melbourne and spare a thought for our healthcare workers. The picture they paint is a pretty bleak one and they're really holding up the fort in this terrible time. Thanks, guys. And tomorrow on The Briefing, as Omicron raises its ugly head absolutely everywhere, we're asking the question, should we be going back into lockdown? Listener.